Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, over the weekend, the Working Families Party endorsed Cynthia Nixon for governor. We'll talk to two WFP backers about the fallout. And the NYPD's shooting of Saheed Vassal has further stoked gentrification concerns in Crown Heights. We'll find out why. Hi, thanks for joining us. I'm Ross Tuttle, filling in for Ashley Ford, who's still recovering from the flu. But we're going to get her on the line to see how she's doing. Ashley, you there? I'm here. How you doing, Ashley? You know, not great, but better than yesterday. Well, better than yesterday. We're happy to hear it. We miss you. Um, so I assume, you know, uh, since James Comey's book came out today, maybe you got your advanced copy, right? I'm assuming you've been snuggled up in bed with it all week. Um, <laughs> nothing. Uh, how, how's that reading been? Uh, that's nothing, nothing like that to expedite uh, an, getting over an illness, right? Yeah, that's exactly what I want to put in my body, more poison from this administration. (laughs) (laughs) I've actually kind of avoided the book. There's something about it that I just feel like all the key points are going to get turned into, you know, the headlines on news stations for the next week or so. Mm -hmm. Why would I need to read the book for myself? I think I... I have a pretty good idea of what's going on over there. Uh-huh. Well, we're all soaking in it over here. Well, some of us <laughs> are anyway. Uh, and it feels like we're you know, wet and slimy. Um, well, well, so while you've been laid up, you probably missed that goat yoga was coming to Bushwick, but now it isn't. Sad, right? Oh, no. Yeah, I know. It's too bad. I guess uh, uh, having a live animal exhibition, wild animal exhibition in the city requires some kind of permits and special organization, which the studio didn't have. But uh, good news for those people who are really dying to do goat yoga, they can um, go upstate for those retreats. Um, Who knew? Who knew goats and yoga? Um, (laughs) I didn't know. You see how the government infringes on our rights? Right. Keeping us from our goats and yoga coming between those two things, it's just, it's it's un-American. It's messed up. Yeah. It's messed up. If I want a goat on the small of my back, I should be able to get a goat on the small of my back. Right. Who should be standing in the way? Um, Well, then, also, you may have missed that uh, White Castle's trying to introduce some meatless burgers that bleed, um, because that's the missing element for uh, meat eaters, right, that bloodlust. You know, if they can get blood in their vegetarian-based foods, vegetable-based foods, then I guess I guess problem solved. That's the most disgusting thing I've ever <laughs> heard in my life, first of all. I do want to confess that I've never eaten anything at White Castle, even though I'm from Indiana. Uh-huh. But uh, this isn't getting me any closer to that finish line. Like, I don't want... A plant, a plant bleeding burger. Like, what is? No, I, that's a hard pass. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I have been in White Castles before out of curiosity, but I've always walked out without ordering anything. So, Ashley, we got to run. We've got a stuffed show today. Uh, Jarrett Murphy is here. He's going to be talking to some backers of the Working Families Party about their endorsement of Cynthia Nixon for governor, and he's going to find out about the fallout from that. Also, Natasha Leonard is going to be on to talk about the NYPD killing of Saheed Vassal in Crown Heights a couple weeks ago and how the community fears that there's a connection to the burgeoning gentrification in that neighborhood. So go rest. We'll be here when you're ready to come back and get well soon. And, All right. I uh, miss you guys. We miss you too. And we'll be right back, or Jarrett will be right back with our first guests. The 2018 elections are months away, 
but a lot of pieces are already moving around the game board. In the past couple of weeks, we've seen a Republican who decided not to run for governor decide to run for governor. Andrew Cuomo go from saying he couldn't broker peace between rival Democratic factions to, hey, look at that, brokering peace between rival Democratic factions. And the Working Families Party seeing some major defections and making a major endorsement in the governor's race. Let's talk to members of two organizations who helped shape WFP's decision to back Cynthia Nixon for governor, Jatsiri Tovar of Make the Road Action. Thanks for coming to the show. And Jonathan Weston from New York Communities for Change. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Um, so, Jitsiri, tell us, why did WFP decide to endorse Cynthia Nixon? Well, when we talked with her, um, she definitely had her priorities straight, and she had uh, the community's priorities straight. Um, she constantly advocated for the New York Dream Act, uh, for driver's uh, for all, uh, regardless of immigration status. And we know that that's top priorities for, for my community. I've personally been advocating for the New York Dream Act for over eight years. Um, Governor Como has just left that on the shelf and not done nothing about it. And definitely, uh, it looks like Cynthia Nixon is willing to fight with us um, in getting that passed. It feels a little early, right? There have been, obviously, no debates, very few policy speeches. She has not put out a tremendous detail of her policy positions. Uh, why jump in so quickly? I mean, I think, one, people are excited. Uh, people are excited about the choice of somebody different than uh, Cuomo. Um, so I think, uh, you know, they've been really, uh, you know, kind of hearing Cynthia Nixon's message about inequality and how the state has become one of the most unequal states uh, in the country. And I think people are ready for a change. And I just think process-wise, you know, the, the Working Families Party and a lot of the other parties have to make their decision for governor um, in the upcoming uh, month. So, you know, in many ways, a lot of uh, activist groups uh, you know, across the state wanted to see a decision made quickly so they could, uh, you know, get in the middle of a campaign. I mean, I think in general, most uh, candidates are running for a long time. You know, Cynthia um, really decided to make the jump recently because um, it really felt like no one was going to take on the governor who's been, you know, really doing the bidding for real estate every time, you know, every session in Albany. And, you know, and again, another budget where the schools are underfunded. We haven't reformed the rent laws. You know, we haven't uh, gotten rid of, uh, you know, uh, bail um, for, you know, people who are sitting on, uh, uh, you know, waiting for trials. So there's just... So many things that aren't happening in New York State, and people really wanted to see a change. And I think, um, you know, the momentum is, you know, huge. Um, I think we just saw in the polls today that uh, Cynthia is gaining traction, uh, and we want to be a part of that. So what some establishment Democrats are saying about the governor is, you know, wait a second. He has, by many standards, a pretty progressive record, right? He passed an increased minimum wage. He uh, is an advocate for shutting down Rikers more quickly than the mayor is. Um, we passed a Family Leave Act. And he's been dealing with a Republican-controlled state Senate. So given that, he's done pretty well. Your response to that is? What we say to that is there's definitely more that can be done um, for New Yorkers. Uh, we're under an administration that's constantly attacking our communities, uh, immigrants and working class people. And this is where Cuomo really needed to step up and, and get things done. Um, he has talked a lot about it, but he hasn't done enough for our community. Do you think that the WFP endorsement will play a role in the Democratic primary? Is it kind of a validation of, of Nixon in some way? Uh, I mean, I think it'll make people think twice about just uh, anointing the governor. But, you know, I think, like, 
the Democratic Party in New York is similar to the Democratic Party across the country, that, um, you know, a lot of these processes are already established before, you know, people even get in the race. Uh, so, you know, we're not anticipating the Democratic Party uh, will endorse uh, Cynthia Nixon at their convention, but we do believe that Cynthia Nixon will win the Democratic primary in September and become the Democratic candidate. So, uh, I think that's what we're all banking on and pushing toward, is that, you know, it's, it's been too long um, to have somebody in the State House overseeing one of the, you know, the largest affordability crisis uh, this city and state has ever seen. You know, we're approaching 100,000 people homeless, um, you know, sleeping on the streets, nowhere to go, uh, rents through the roof everywhere, while the governor is taking all his money from developers. Um, and we think it's time to put that sort of uh, politics to an end and have somebody that is running to, you know, she, you know, Cynthia said she's not taking corporate contributions. She's, you know, uh, really running as a candidate for the people. And we think it's about time we have someone like that in the state house in Albany. So, hypothetically, let's say that uh, Governor Cuomo prevails in the Democratic primary. Has Ms. Nixon c committed to running in the general election just on the WFP line? And do you even want that? Wouldn't that just elevate the chances of the Republican nominee? I mean, I think uh, Cynthia has said, and Bill Lipton, I was on the radio with him yesterday, had said that uh, folks are committed to a process. Um, you know, after September, you know, we plan on winning in September, so I think people should actually ask the governor the same thing. If, you know, when he loses in September, is he going to give up the corporate-backed independence party, um, which I don't see a lot of people asking the governor about. I think, you know, Cynthia's plan is to win in September, and that's our plan, and there will be a discussion afterward if something else happens. So, Bill Lipton came up in a quote that uh, has uh, come out in the past few days around the WFP's endorsement. Michael Mulgrew, the head of the UFT, calling him uh, misguided and delusional and saying that this decision to endorse Nixon is really more about personal agendas and egos than, like, a grand vision of progressive policy in the state. Uh, you know, reference, perhaps, to, like, some ill feelings about 2014 and the governor getting the WFP endorsement and then trying to basically kill the party. Does, was that part of the background of this decision? Did the ill feelings from last time influence the WFP's decision this time? I mean, I think uh, it's less about kind of ill feelings from, you know, uh, 2014, and it's kind of the divisiveness that the governor goes after people on. Uh, and I think what we've seen that's played out in the press and, um, you know, uh, the New York Times wrote about is kind of the governor's ruthlessness to go after, you know, anti-poverty organizations like, you know, mine and Make the Road Action. Um, you know, when people disagree with him, he goes after them. He threatens their funding. He threatens uh, the people that uh, they work with. And he does whatever he can uh, to, uh, you know, uh, push other people out of the race. And I think what we've found is that when you stand up to a bully like that, uh, it actually shows uh, that he's not invincible. And I think that's what we're looking to try and do, you know, both us as uh, organizations, but also the Working Families Party in general, is that New York has had enough of uh, Governor Cuomo's bully tactics and his, you know, kind of, uh, you know, how he wants to divide the left. And I think what it has actually shown is that he has no allegiance to a broader progressive movement. He, his only allegiance is to his own, like, you know, thrust for power. And I think uh, it's going to get in his way, and I think Cynthia is going to overcome it. Um, and just like any bully, you know, you take on on the playground, uh, until you show that they're not invincible, uh, nobody believes, and I think we're about to do that. 
the okay. union defect. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I am just um, wanted to comment that I think it is very disappointing that the Governor Cuomo came out and attacked, it, attacked um, organizations like ours who are on the ground working with, uh, with our community, who know the necessities of our community, and we're trying to uh, get legislation that will benefit our community. And then we have our governor um, who attacks us like that. It was very disappointing to hear him say that. I wanted to ask you that. This is risky, right, for the party and for your organizations when you have these union defections. There's the possibility the party will split um, forever. Is that a danger? I mean, I think the, the Working Families Party itself has lots of labor unions that are still very active uh, and involved. I mean, even at the uh, endorsement on uh, Saturday, there were unions present. They were, um, you know, still pushing toward a more progressive uh, New York. I think, you know, there's definitely risk in all of these things. I mean, my institution, we started the fight for 15. We work with labor unions on everything we do. I mean, we're a product of the labor movement. Um, and we don't look at these decisions lightly. Uh, you know, we, we look at it from a point of, you know, um, what the governor has done for the state, what members in our communities uh, are at risk every day. They're at risk of eviction. They're at risk of deportation. They're at risk of so many things. And when we make a decision, it's based off of that. And frankly, folks on the ground are risking a lot more than any of us are risking every day, including, you know, threats from the governor. So in many ways, it's an easy decision. So a question for you, Jitsiri. The, the argument that will be made against Cynthia Nixon is the qualifications one, right? Cuomo will make that. If she beats Cuomo, Mark Molinaro, the likely Republican nominee, who's a former mayor, state assemblyman, county executive, will say, you know, she's never been elected dog catcher. Is there a worry that that will be a winning argument against her, the qualifications issue? Well, uh, members that make the road action have been able to sit down with her. I've been able to sit down with her and talk to her, and she seems like a woman that is willing to fight on the ground, that, you know, is just tired, just like every other New Yorker, of the things that haven't been done for our community. Um, public school funding, uh, fun fully funding the MTA, um, you know, standing up ag um, against um, the corporate billionaires, you know. Um, it's stuff that our community is tired of, and she's definitely tired of, and I think we're definitely on the same page on that. And she's willing to learn from us, and uh, we're willing to stand right beside her in the fight. And also, Mark, who? What? <laughs> like, let's, let's be honest. They don't have a real candidate. Um, so, someone looking at this from the outside would say, you know, this is what the left always does. They find reasons to fight against each other. The big story in the country now is Donald Trump. Why are you dividing yourselves when you need to fight him? I'm sure that's something you guys have thought about when con contemplating this race and this decision. What do you think? Is it, is it worth splitting the left over Andrew Cuomo versus Cynthia Nixon? I don't think there's any institutions that fight Donald Trump more than ours. You know, like, we have fought Donald Trump on all of his, uh, you know, deportation orders. We have fought Donald Trump on his, you know, tax scam to give you know, tax cuts to billionaires and the rich. Uh, and we've been on the front lines of that fight. Um, you know, we believe that, uh, the, you know, Cynthia Nixon, uh, you know, running 
uh, and winning in September is actually about reestablishing where the Democratic Party should be. Because let's be honest, the Democrats lost last time. They lost big, and the people that lost are our communities. So we actually stand to bear the, 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 the worst of a Trump administration in all of them. And we know that we can't get back to the White House unless we have a message that actually resonates with everyday people on the ground. And right now, the Democratic Party's message has been, let's suck up to corporations and beg them for the crumbs that they give us. And I think what we're finding is that's not a winning message. You know, that's, you know, they, you know continuing this kind of corporate democratic theory of change, um, you know, isn't going to win a selection. So we need something different, and that's what we're doing. So Jonathan Weston from New York Communities for Change and Jatsiri Tovar from Make the Road Action, thanks so much for joining us. So I don't know if it's just me um, or if it's indeed the case that the Working Families Party has been getting a lot more attention these days than it ever got in the past. Letitia James won a number of years back under that line. Uh, they've had a couple of high-profile endorsements. They're fighting with the um, Independent Democratic Conference. Now this endorsement of Cynthia Nixon, they seem to be cresting, but then one wonders if this is in some way potentially shooting themselves in the foot. But this is a high-wire act, definitely, I think. The Working Families Party has been around for about 20 years, mm -hmm. grew out of the new party, you know, combination of um, progressive activist groups and unions. And, you know, this is definitely the riskiest move they've ever taken, you know, and that makes it very important for them. It, it could destroy the party. Uh, you know, in 2014, they were on the hot seat before when mm -hmm. they considered uh, endorsing Zephyr Teachout over Andrew Cuomo. They decided to endorse Cuomo. He made promises which he did not keep. And then he started the Women's Equality Party in part to try to destroy the WFP. Mm -hmm. So he's made clear, even when they've allied with him, that he would um, try to undermine them, and now he's made it quite clear he's going to do that, too. So there's a lot of risk. The reward is, if it works, um, suddenly they are much, much more influential. But right. that obviously will come down to the votes being counted in several months' time. Uh -huh. So is this a bit of retribution, then, because he's tried to undermine the, the Working Families Party, that now they're trying to get back at him and saying, you know, coming out this early, not even, you know, entertaining the possibility that they're going to back him? There's no love lost on mm -hmm. either side. Um, but they're all very, on both sides, very strategic people. WFP has always been a fusion party. They've often endorsed candidates that, frankly, weren't that exciting just because they knew they were fairly progressive and would win. Mm -hmm. You know, in 2005, I think, in the New York mayor's race, they just stayed out of it just right. because it was too risky for them. So I think that while there's a lot of personal animus there, in the end they made a calculation that mm -hmm. um, staying with Andrew Cuomo, while maybe a smart move, was really not going to get them what they wanted to get, and it was worth taking this, taking this flyer, taking this risk. Mm -hmm. Again, Cole made it clear that he has no use for the party anyway up until this year, so maybe they realized that either they were going to pick someone else or they're going to be in the wilderness no matter what. Right. Well, when you mentioned this is a party of working families, a party of unions, a lot of union defections over this move. Um, are they they're going to weather this storm? Are there going to be more defections? Does it look like? Uh, you know, I think it was right for Jonathan to point out that several unions remain in. You know, the New York State uh, Nurses Association, the United Teachers, uh, Amalgamated Transit. But yeah, some of the big ones have gone 32BJ, 1199, the communications workers. Um, you know, I think that unions, in terms of their ability to have power in the political process about the number of people they turn out, right. over the years that's ebbed and flowed. Um, I don't think it's decisive that those unions have left. I think if they can hold the ones that they have, they can still call themselves this combination of labor and progressive mm -hmm. groups. If the defections continue, if there's a second wave of them, that becomes more problematic. But I think the folks who have hung around plan to hang around for a while. Mm -hmm. And you asked them about qualifications, the qualifications of, of Cynthia Nixon. 
a celebrity candidate. We've had our, you know, we know what that can be like, <laughs> you know, that it's, it doesn't qualify you to run, you know, a large bureaucracy as we've found out, as we're finding out, sadly. Uh, one wonders, you know, she may be more equipped than Trump, but, you know, she may also find the challenges of working with a, a Senate that may have other ideas, you know, with an assembly that isn't always keen on what she's interested in doing. So she's saying a lot of great things. It's a lot of emotion in this race right mm-hmm. now, it feels like. How practical, though, is it? Well, it's interesting. I think, you know, her coming out as early as she did in February, basically, for a September election, was interesting. So she has a lot of time to demonstrate that she has some gravitas and policy issues or to demonstrate that she doesn't. You know, there's a lot of time for gaffes, um, you know, to tell her life story, show points where she's had to make decisions. She does come at this with some experience as an education advocate. She's not new to policy issues. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact is that, you know, Cuomo before him, uh, Patterson, Spitzer mm-hmm. have had trouble navigating Albany. Mm-hmm. Bloomberg, de Blasio have trouble with the Senate and the Assembly at times. It's difficult for anybody sure. to make change happen in New York. So that alone is not something that Cuomo can say he's waved a magic wand and made happen because a lot of his agenda remains on the, you know, yet to do list. Right. Well, I guess we'll see. We'll have a few months more, many months more, and we'll be talking about this more, I'm sure, and especially once you get Cynthia Nixon on the show. Definitely. The call is out. (laughs) Uh, One final thing I just wanted to ask um, about Working Families Party. They've been backing a number of candidates who are opposing members formerly of the IDC, I guess can we say formally? I don't know. Formerly of the IDC of the Independent Democratic Conference. What's that going to do to their support of those candidates? Clearly, this is an effort, you know, maybe to undermine a little bit, to to steal a little bit of uh, Cynthia Nixon's thunder, perhaps, that, you know, this reintegration of the IDC and and the Democratic Conference, or Democratic Caucus in the Senate. Um, What's that going to do for the working family line then. That's a good question. I think, you know, their fate will be tied to the governor's line. How they perform on that line will determine their ballot position. Um, in terms of the races for the IDC, those now become more than ever, they're local races. And so mm-hmm. local factors will determine that. You know, they're really, in the city, I think it's seven different races. There's not a contest in each of them. But it'll be dependent on personality, mm-hmm. on slights, on how people feel about those folks. I don't know how much voters really care about these behind-the-scenes machinations. I think in the corridors of power, they now have several sort of active uh, irons in the fire and a lot of risks they're taking. Right. The, Cynthia is the biggest risk, mm-hmm. but those races, you know, they're putting capital on the line there as well. But a lot of people have been trying to activate voters around the issue of the IDC, telling voters, progressive voters, that the, these individuals are the impediments to progressive legislation being passed. If they lose that as, as a, you know, a, a lever, what, what will happen? I wonder if they'll be... As successful at getting people to come out? That's a good question. I think uh, prog- the progressives there are probably targeting with that line were people who would come out anyway. It's just a question of who they would vote for. Right. I think that the IDC left enough of a bad taste in those folks' mouth that, um, that the Working Families Party would be able to capitalize on that. You know, mm-hmm. the deal, the timing of it, um, the way that it came after Cynthia Nixon came forward to kind of threaten Angie Cuomo, there's a narrative there that if you were skillful, and the WFP has proven it to sometimes be skill- skillful, proven itself to be skillful, um, you can exploit that. Right. Well, thanks again, Jarrett, for another great segment, and we'll you. see you in a couple weeks. Yes. All right. Thanks. Two weeks ago, NYPD officers responding to 911 calls in Crown Heights unloaded 10 bullets into a man who was wielding a pipe and pointing it like a gun. 
We've all heard the story by now of Saheed Vassal, who died from these wounds. He was a neighborhood fixture, a young man who struggled with mental illness, but performed odd jobs and chores for local stores, and was considered harmless by those who knew him. If people knew him, why the frantic 911 calls and the NYPD's egregious use of force? That's the subject of a recent article in The Intercept by our next guest, Natasha Leonard. Thanks for coming on 112BK for Thank what you. I can't believe is the first time. Yeah, I think so. Oh, my <laughs> God. Well, welcome. So Thank happy you. to have you here. So let's talk real quickly about what happened that was uh, April 4th in Crown Heights and what we know to be the case. Right. So uh, Sahid Vassal, as you mentioned, was a sort of a neighborhood fixture who was known to have a history of mental illness and, in fact, a bipolar diagnosis. On that day, he was seen by a number of people, and this is also on CCTV footage, wielding a small metal object that turned out to be a sort of pipe. Mm -hmm. And he was indeed brandishing it at some bystanders. Um, what we understand from police is that there were three 911 calls. Mm -hmm. The police then arrived at the scene, and these were not beat cops known to locals. Mm. These were from a specific crime unit, unmarked cars, undercover op officers, who, according to witnesses, leapt out and within seconds had filled this man with bullets. Yeah. Um, the immediate backlash, and it was quite immediate, from the neighborhood and from activists around New York was that evening and the following evening to take to the streets in protest. Um, this was an, another example of uh, death by bullet, an unarmed man uh, who suffers from mental illness. Death, death by cop. Death by cop, indeed. And I think uh, what was interesting, I was at the protests on the Thursday evening, the following night, um, was there was a strong feeling that it was not only an issue of the epidemic, the nonstop epidemic of police right. violence, racist police violence, but also the problem of gentrification mm. as a possible, if unknown, aspect in this murder. Yeah. Um, so it was the belief and a, certainly the feeling in the crowd amongst long-term residents that no one who had lived in the neighborhood a very long time would have called the cops on Vassell, um, knowing the risks mm. of... Uh, police entering into these neighborhoods, especially when you have someone who suffers from mental illness. About half of police killings have a victim mm -hmm. who is known to have mental illness, and this is all the more pronounced with people of color. Mm. Um, so, so it became a, a sort of double issue brought up right. in this murder of gentrification, risking bringing more cops mm -hmm. into neighborhoods right. uh, with potentially deadly consequences. So it's interesting. I mean, I want to unpack that a little bit. And I thought, you know, when I was reading the article, one of my first reactions was, well, if people, like, if people knew him, or in, why don't the police know him? But it turns out the police did know him, the ones who are the beat cops mm -hmm. in that neighborhood who were not the ones called in. And that's a whole other right. issue and a whole other concern. And then I thought, well, also, if you have people... Um, you know, any neighborhood where you have people moving in and moving out, there's a flow, people who might not know him. But the key issue is that you have individuals, and you wrote in your article um, that it represents some kind of privilege for those who don't recognize the risks of calling the police, um, especially when you're dealing with mental illness and the risks that that, that that poses to black life. Absolutely. So I think what's important is that we could get very lost in trying to find out exactly 
which three people called the cops about Saheed Bassel. Um, it is understood that actually one of them may have been indeed a local resident. Uh, so, a bodega owner. Uh, uh, sorry, a, a uh, laundromat, laundromat owner, right. I believe. Mm -hmm. So it's not so much that we are absolutely sure mm -hmm. that people who had come in as the vanguard of an increasingly and speedily gentrifying area, Crown Heights, were definitely the mm -hmm. 911 callers not understanding sure. the risks, risks of calling the police on mm -hmm. mentally ill, unarmed black men who may appear threatening. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, that the neighborhood was so ready and so fearful of this pattern that we're clearly speaking to something that is not a one-off incident. Right. And we do have, across the country, not just in this city, numerous examples mm -hmm. of um, gentrifying residents shifting the dynamic in the neighborhood such that... In police presence, excuse me. Police presences increase. Right. Um, criminalization increases. Mm -hmm. um, there are more arrests. Right. An elevation of what's known as broken windows policing. Mm, sure. The policing of social activities, mm -hmm. such even things like public urination. Right. Um, and the big question here is, if you move into a neighborhood um, and you are unaware of the local dynamics. And perhaps because of very ungrounded and subtle racist presumptions, mm -hmm. one might feel threatened sure. by what one reads as threatening criminal, the criminalized black body. But that's not valid. Mm -hmm. So to jump to calling the police mm -hmm. because of the idea of one's own safety mm -hmm. uh, needs to be checked. And I think this is one of those cases where check your privilege is a really right. relevant call mm -hmm. uh, if we are involved in the gentrifying process, which many of us are, myself included. Well, right. And you think about that on, on a sort of a, maybe a small, less harmful scale where people are coming into a neighborhood and they might hear loud music late at night or there might be mm. parties on the street, people coming out of their homes, um, you know, having fun, frolicking, whatever. And then people who've moved into this neighborhood with their children and being like, oh, we need to sleep and calling the police saying, you know, this is a noise violation or something like that. So the police coming in. And I remember, you know, when I was covering and doing some writing on, on stop and frisk, individuals who were in, one individual who was in Bed-Stuy, who saw the police coming in and felt like the police were sort of sweeping the neighborhood and trying to make it safe mm. for for the this, this influx of white people. And... I think he was right in some ways. Well, I mean, there's a there's sort of grand and complicated history of this, and the question is always safe for whom. Um, you know, Giuliani is celebrated by some of, cl mm -hmm. you know, cleaning up New York, mm -hmm. but obviously social justice and anti-racist activists mm -hmm. and advocates um, are very clear of the racist history of, of clean for whom and mm -hmm. who is considered dirt right. in these processes. Um, and, and again, off... Oftentimes, there have been truly deadly consequences. There was a famous case in San Francisco a few years back. Um, a lifelong resident, a kid called Alex Nieto, mm -hmm. was having a break from his job at a, a park where he'd spent so much time his whole life. He had a taser on him because his job was to be a security guard. Mm -hmm. He was wearing a San Francisco 49ers jacket, red which jacket. is red. Yeah. Two, new, two young white gentleman who had just moved into the neighborhood, and we all know the story of the 
ferocity with which San Francisco is gentrified. They call the cops because they read his jacket mm -hmm. as a gang jacket. And this is the kind of thing we're dealing with. And I think what's important, too, is that the police themselves, the NYPD in the Vassell case, released mm -hmm. the 911 call transcripts. Right. And they released the CCTV footage. And the point of that was clearly to say, look, the public, these people truly did feel threatened we were justified. by this man right. wielding an object that mm -hmm. they stated was a gun. Mm -hmm. And that actually in itself is a problem because it doubles down a narrative, the narrative that undergirds laws uh, like stand your ground, in which fear of mm -hmm. black men, fear of black men with mental illness especially, is taken as necessarily justified and therefore necessarily justified to be responded to with deadly force. Mm. Um, and I think the justification of that fear itself should be completely thrown out the window because it's often not justified fear. Right. Um, and so I think it's a constellation of things mm. that need challenging here. Well, we, we have a very little amount of time left, just about a minute, but you wrote in your article also you know, that the protesters and the demonstrators were urging people who were coming to the neighborhood, and some of the demonstrators themselves, don't call 911. Mm. Those who do call 911 have blood on their hands, which is a powerful statement, because then what do you do if you do feel like there is a legitimate threat? How are you able to discern... Um, you know, one talks about if you are coming in to a neighborhood uh -huh. that is not a place where, um, you know, that you are a gentrifier. Uh, get to know your neighborhood. Get to know your neighbors. Sure. Be, be part of the community as much as possible. Um, don't act like you are, you know, disassociated from it. Don't try to disassociate yourself. But what does one do in that situation? I mean, I would, I would also say there are probably very few of those situations. Um, there are a number of activists and anarchists have actually put out a number of zines and handbooks about this sort of thing. Often there are, you know, mental health networks and hotlines. Say, for example, you are um, mugged. If you are definitely sure you want to involve the police, go yourself to a police station. Mm. Don't bring the police in to a neighborhood that it is being increasingly criminalized and where the police are feared, often for good reason. Mm. Um, if it is a question of being aware of domestic violence, talk to, neighbor, to neighbors, try and create networks, try and see which existing networks exist. Mm -hmm. There are, because I think what people will often find is that in neighborhoods that rightfully fear the police and have had long-term practice in trying to avoid police interaction, these networks often exist. Mm -hmm. um, so who are the, the wealthy gentrifiers, the privileged gentrifiers, um, the students, the artists, me, um, who are we to move in and say that our modes of seeking mm -hmm. protection are right. better than perhaps well-established sure. neighborhood ones sure. that keep us safer? Well, I'm sorry we're going to have to cut it off there, no but we should, be, we should continue this conversation. We'll have you back soon. Sure. I look forward to more talk about this. Okay, Thank thanks, you. Natasha. Um, so that's our show for today. I forgot to ask Ashley if she'll be back tomorrow, but if she is, she'll be talking to the curator of an exhibit about bygone Brooklyn businesses that the Brooklyn Historical Society has up right now. And we'll also get a taste of the Universal Circus now in town. Hope you can join us. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley Seaford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. 
Our show is recorded by Eric Hagasag, Antonio Rosario, Leslie Hayes, and Steve DeSev. And our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.